The Art of Hiding by J. M. Rupert. Chapter 16. A Visit to the Havoc Brothers The nightmares were back. It was not that the images were particularly appalling, it was more that the feelings and sensations felt harmful and wrong. The last nightmare was about being hunted, or maybe hunting. It was difficult to distinguish which. Nan was in a cottage she did not know, rifling through papers, paintings and sketches. Yet there was something she was looking for, some means of escape, but she could not find it. Disconnected images. A pale, dead face shimmered into view on a table. Colour. A rainbow fountain of colour in the shape of a man. Other impressions. A family. A cave. White paint. A figure crouched down before her. And then a horrible sensation flooded through Nan. A dark desire to destroy her pursuer with cruelty. But, in an instant, her feelings swung back again. and absolute fear took hold of her. Nan woke up. She was relieved to discover she was in her bed and not sleepwalking. The sheets were dripping with sweat, however. She was also shivering, but not, she thought, because of the cold gusting through the open window, which was freely rocking back and forth on its hinges. Closing the window, Nan crept back into bed. The sound of Tristan snoring in the room next door reassured her, and soon she drifted off into a dreamless sleep. Early in the next morning, Nan and Tristan awoke to the sounds of people tramping outside the corridor of the archway. There were shouts of, steady, careful, steady, as well as, to me, to you, and easy now. A group of about half a dozen people seemed to be heading towards Russell Elliott's room. As Nan stepped out into the corridor, she saw Sally Croucher taking Hartley away for the playtime downstairs. Great news! Your father's turned the corner, the landlady declared joyously. He's on the mend! Nan kissed her little brother and then greeted Tristan and they both hurried along to their father's room. Dr Beamish, Norbert and Adrian were all in the room, but so was Cat Sanderson and a number of the townsfolk who were manoeuvring a canvas under the doctor's guidance. The canvas was no more than about ten feet long and six feet high, and when unfurled turned out to be an abstract painting executed in crimson colours and warm oranges. Ignoring the commotion caused by the setting up of the new canvas, the twins concentrated on their father. Nan was not quite sure what she'd been expecting, but one glance at Tristan told her they had both been hoping for something more, such as their father being awake. But Russell was still unconscious, although his breathing was clearer now. Gathered around him, Adrian and Norbert both beamed with ecstatic, tearful faces, while Dr Beamish wore his constant expression of professional concern as he went about examining his patient. Great news, friends, Norbert greeted them. Your father, your brave father, has stood at the doors of death and posted a note through it saying, Be back later, much later. <laughs> no gatecrasher him. He'll be back with us in a matter of weeks now, will he not, Doctor? I'm making no promises, but I think so. I'll be honest with you, I've never seen a case as bad as his that's lived. Didn't want to tell you that at the time, but I think you've a right to know it now. He'll need help, mind, and he'll be weak for, well, weeks, possibly months, but it's almost certain he'll pull through now. 
How can you tell? Tristan inquired. Apart from his breathing being slightly stronger, he looks the same to me. Well, he's actively swallowing honey now, said Dr Beamish, as he applied honey to their father's mouth, and they watched him ever so slightly bring his lips together, and his tongue slowly touch the liquid and recede back. Also, he's now in the process of reclamation, as we call it. That's to say that his body is reclaiming itself, a sign of recovery. Come closer, I'll show you. The twins edged forward to the side of the bed as, with a pair of tweezers, Dr Beamish pulled back some of the bandages covering their father's hand. They had to examine the phenomena closely with a magnifying glass, but eventually they saw what was happening. Little by little, millimetre by millimetre, nano-inch by nano-inch, the layers of bone, skin and muscle gradually reclaimed the invisible parts of their father. It was like watching ice crystals form on a window pane, or watching the speed of an hour hand on a good clock, with movement that was close to impossible to detect. After a while, however, they saw that the hand had moved on, and was a tiny step closer to being whole again. "'What's the painting for?' asked Tristan. "'You're not expecting Russ to give an opinion on it, are you?' "'No, no such thing. It's a healing canvas,' Norbert informed them. Templeton likely developed them with Cat Sanderson and the doctor here. They aid the body to heal itself. Your father needed to be constantly monitored until today, but he can now go into the canvas and his health will improve rapidly. You can still visit him in there. It's quite safe. Nan and Tristan watched with concern as their father's bed was bodily lifted up off the floor by the half a dozen townsfolk and then the whole party walked into the canvas. The twins followed them and were struck by how much heat this new canvas gave off. All the colours were muted inside so they did not hurt the eyes, and it felt as if they were inside a huge orange balloon floating in a bright sunlight. A person cannot help but feel their spirits rise and their body tingle. Once their father's bed had been settled in the canvas, Nan raised her head and stared at Cat Sanderson defiantly. Now, Uncle, can you tell her to leave and never come near my father again? Oh, but, 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 Nan, Norbert appealed to his niece. Now, Uncle, I don't care if she's the most dangerous person to have ever used one of those tech staff things. If I see her near Dad again, I'll kill her. Cat Sanderson raised a pacifying hand to Norbert, bowed her head and stepped back out of the canvas. You came down on her too hard, Nan, said Tristan, as they were walking to school that day with Toby and Cayman. Everyone else rates Cat. Why should you be different? Have you forgotten that she led the group of caretakers who just managed to reach the inn too late to help Dad. How convenient for her that she didn't have to fight her own sisters. Did you know that Cat Sanson is a sister? asked Nan. Was a sister? She's not been one for years and years now, at least as long as I've been alive, replied Toby. She's all right, you know, Nan. I know it's alarming at first, but she deliberately lets as few people as possible see her without her lenses in so it doesn't freak them out ever since she's been converted. How can you say that, Toby? She's a sister, cut from the same cloth as the things that almost killed both of our fathers. She isn't one of them. Really? Well, let me take a wild guess and ask you if she was the last person who saw Templeton Likely before he was killed. Toby and Cayman looked awkwardly at each other. Yeah, so? What's your point, Nan? I knew it. And no one in Wanish finds that strange. No one has suggested that there might be a connection between this vile old enemy and the death of a caretaker. Cat is a caretaker, Nan, replied Toby. She's not a murderer like the rest of the sisters. 
Cats helped us and developed special canvases, taught us to defend ourselves, become part of a community. She's changed. No, Toby, she's just using more subtle tactics. That's all, spat Nan. But worst of all, everyone in Wanish and Dad believes her. They trust her. They've let the cat guard the birdhouse. Oh, back off, Nanny, Tristan complained. They've managed to keep this place secret from the world for years. They're not a bunch of goobers in Wanish. We've only been here a few days and you reckon you're seeing the bigger picture? Please, it's insulting to them. Until you show me proof, cat's bona fide with me. How can you defend her from what she and those others did to Dad? Oh, forgive me, Nan. I must have been knocked senseless at that point, but I didn't see Cat Sanderson attacking Russ or Gilbert or Adrian, and no one else pointed it out to me either. You know what I mean. No, I don't. I can understand that you want a Barney with the sisters for what they did to Dad, but you're picking on our friends, not our enemies. Is that what you believe too, Cayman? Surely you don't believe that something as pure evil as one of the sisters can ever change her true nature? Cayman frowned as he thought about his answer. Cat sound, Nan. Too irate to continue talking to the boys, Nan ran on ahead. Nan! Cayman shouted after her, but she was through the gate at the bottom of the cliffs and already bounding up the steps. Leave her, Tristan advised his friends. It's the Drew in her. May I sit with you and Shelley? Nan asked Wilton Harbinger on entering the classroom. Aren't you going to join Pike, Croucher and your brother? He replied in his quiet dream of a voice. No, they choose to remain stupid. That's their choice. But I would prefer some more sane company, she replied. Yes, it's a hard lesson to learn, Nan, Shelley Fordsley proclaimed. But it's good you found out what they're like early on. Of course you may join us, Nan. You'll always be welcome. Toby and Cayman grimaced as they saw with whom Nan had chosen to sit. Tristan just glared at his sister and shook his head in a conspicuous way that suggested both disapproval and shame. After taking the class register, Alderman Boxer, now in English teacher mode, announced that the afternoon would be taken up by a field trip to a theatre to see a play by Shakespeare. Shakespeare! Oh, the name is a poem and a tale in itself, is it not? enthused the English and art teacher. Shakespeare, or the bard, as he's sometimes known, was and remains the greatest writer to have ever graced the English language. You'll note the superlative, greatest. Oh, Mr. Croucher, Robert Louis Stevenson was merely great, a servant of the court of Shakespeare. Now, when Shakespeare was alive about 400 years ago, there was no such thing as a dictionary. Oh, language was constantly being invented. Words came and went with the seasons and only survived by literal word of mouth. Yet our hero, Shakespeare, recorded the words he heard, or maybe his genius invented the many words that we take for granted today. Did you know that many believe that Shakespeare gave us the word amazement? Oh, I find that fitting. And today, try to contain your excitement, Mr. Pike, today we shall see the master, the maestro, at work, and at work in a play. Will there be sword fights and poison? Tristan asked. Or will it be all that lovey-dovey malarkey? <laughs> a touch of the lovey-dovey, I fear, Mr. Elliot. Alas for you, no true violence in this play. You'll have to make do with deceit and great illusion. My apologies. 
answered Oldman Boxer, raising his eyes to the heavens. Forgive him, O oh Bart, for he knows not what he says. Right, we meet outside the Havoc Brothers at two o'clock this afternoon. The school morning passed without any real incident. Nan stuck with Wilton Harbinger and Shelley Fordsley, whilst avoiding the boys as much as possible. During the mid-morning break, she deliberately brushed off Cayman's attempts to make peace with her. You're right to ignore him, Shelley praised her. Just because you met him before you met us does not mean you have to remain friends with him. He's not a true friend to you, neither is Croucher. They will not look out for you as Wilton and I will. I'm sorry to say that Pike and Croucher are part of the wrong crowd, Wilton added. It shows great character in you, Nan, that you managed to spot this so early. It does, Shelley agreed, and it's such a shame your brother is mixing with the wrong crowd because the islanders have nothing but admiration for you both when you defended your poor father. Thank you, said Nan, beginning to find their conversation a little overpowering. But it's not that I believe them to be in the wrong crowd, just wrong in some argument we were having. And stupid. They're being unforgivably stupid. Demands to much the same thing, replied Wilton. Nan turned around to see that Rex Fordsley had moved up behind her, without the slightest sound to give away his presence. The voice, like the man, lacked any character as far as she could tell, and might have belonged to a machine grinding out a cold, metallic delivery of words. It seemed impossible now. But now that she thought about it, Nan believed this was the first time she'd ever heard Rex speak. Oh, it was about Cat Sanderson, explained Nan. I don't trust her, and I'm amazed that knowing her history, anybody else in Wanish does. Everyone else in Wanish may trust her, but not everyone else is in the communities, Wilton replied. We islanders don't trust her either, but we're forced to endure her living among us. That thing which is not even loyal to its own kind, Rex added. His voice was without emotion, and he spoke as if he were rehearsing the line, but did not have the conviction to believe in it. You really have the character of an islander, Nan, said Shelley proudly. You should think about living on Dab Island. You and your family should think about leaving here as soon as your father recovers, Rex interrupted his sister. He should not become a caretaker for his own sake. Look what happened to him. None of you belong here. Please, Rex, said Shelley, trying to smooth things over. I don't want him to become a caretaker either if they allow a sister among them, Nan said. She did not like Rex's tone, but the very fact that he could express such opinions without passion disturbed her. What would happen if Rex truly lost his temper? Anyway, the caretakers have done nothing for us but almost get my father killed. Don't judge all caretakers so harshly, Rex proclaimed. Some even have clear purpose and direction, he added, before noiselessly stalking off down the corridor. Forgive him, Nan, said Shelley, grabbing Nan's hand to stop her from leaving. He's still upset at being passed over for your father. Deep down, I think Rex likes you. But in his own way, you have to admire Rex, Wilton chimed in, and admit that the man has a destiny here. During lunch back at the inn, Nan sat on a table away from the boys and played with Hartley. At two o'clock, the entire class trooped down to the Sequoia Tree Square, where they were met by Oldman Boxer. He was very animated now, and was acting like a child about to receive the treat of his life. Now, follow me, everyone. Oh, I can't tell you how long I've been waiting for this moment, yearning for it with unbearable anticipation. It's taken months, yes, months, to perfect this canvas, and my favourite play, too. I mean, 
Don't misunderstand me. The Scottish play and the Dane are mighty pieces of work, but this, ah, oh, me, but it's troubling perfection. Follow everyone. Follow me to hear the voices of heaven. Almost overcome with emotion, Aidan Boxer just managed to lead his class towards the Havoc Brothers' equipment and supplies, historical and modern for expeditions and adventures. It was only as Tristan was about to enter the stall that he noticed Luke Lucas rise from one of the benches by the tree and reluctantly shuffle forward in the same direction as the class. You coming too, Luke? asked Tristan. Same side, boys. Due to the danger of attacks, all school trips have to have a minimum of two teachers attending. Shakespeare? <laughs> Ripper. As if I don't have to listen to poems every day of my life, now I have to go on a trip to listen to the words of a dead one. Once he'd negotiated the flood barrier outside the door and stepped into the store, Tristan knew that what he had previously glimpsed at through the window was even better inside. At last, he had found a shop that matched his own spirit. Havoc Heaven. The Havoc Brothers Equipment and Supplies, Historical and Modern for Expeditions and Adventures, was not a store a person could ever take for granted. Costumes, weapons, accessories, hats, footwear and every type of clothing in human history were scattered around the shop, covering every square inch of space, so it seemed as if the place was built from all these strange items. The room itself was far from symmetrical, with random staircases leading up to a balcony where more items were stored into categories and sections only those who worked in the shop could understand. In addition, ladders of various sizes could be wheeled across the room to allow access to specific compartments set within the walls or certain hard-to-reach nooks. It was a bizarre, fantastic place that reeked of untold tales and stories yet to be lived. Alderman Boxer stood in the middle of the room at a loss over what to do next as no one had come to greet him. No one touch anything? No one touch anything? He kept repeating over and over again. Clearly the command did not apply to Luke Lucas, who immediately picked up a harpoon and started fingering the point of the blade to test how sharp it was. A sudden noise from one of the corridors leading out to the back of the building, and Alderman Boxer stepped forward for his two o'clock appointment. But he leapt back with a gasp as a huge grizzly bear lolloped lazily into the room. The bear stopped a little way off from the class and sniffed the air. G'day, Vlad, said Luke Lucas nonchalantly. Vlad the bear swung his huge head around to see who had called his name and then padded off into another part of the store. A small, sprightly gentleman appeared and patted Vlad's backside as he toddled past. Pooh, be off with you, Vlad. You know you scare the teachers, the man said affectionately as he approached the class. Ah, Harry, there you are. That bear of yours gave me quite a start, said Oldman Boxer. Sorry about that, old man, and excuse me for being late. We were just uh, preparing your canvas, the Havoc brother explained. Harry Havoc was one of the brothers who ran the store and looked every inch an adventurer with his bald head, trim beard and bright searching gaze that took in the whole class at a glance. His eyes rested on Nan and Tristan for a micro moment and appeared to size them up in that time. A small, wiry man in his late middle ages, Harry Havoc's springy step still suggested great energy and his tanned face hinted a great experience, while his open manner and broad smile implied a tendency towards the good humour. Good day there, Luke. I'm afraid that's a, a late 18th century harpoon from Nantucket Island, so you won't be able to take it into the canvas, you know. I know, mate. Reminds me of snorkelling off Cairns when I was their age. Luke Lucas said, pointing at the class. 
Have you been up to the Northern Territory? Ben and I had a great walk around there, asked the Havoc brother. Done, Darwin. I'm a coastal man myself, Harry. I need to be near surf. <laughs> of course you are. Sailed into Wanish, didn't you? More like crashed into Wanish, mate. Well, anyway, it's a stunning place, your country, Luke. Strangest thing, though, we can only reach about the last 200 years of Australia. We've tried taking some Aboriginal samples, but the canvases won't take, so it might as well be the dream time as far as we're concerned. Excuse me, gentlemen, but this is my booking. Oh, I'm sorry, Alderman. Harry Havoc apologised. London. Early uh, 17th century, wasn't it? Weapons? Yeah, said Luke Lucas. No, said Oldman Boxer. I'm not having the pupils wielding any sort of weapons. I'm not suggesting the pupils should have them, Alderman, explained Harry. But you realise that it is the caretaker council law for you and Luke to carry some sort of weapon in case of attack. Take a couple of rapiers. And Luke, I'm going to give you this spectrum flare too. Use the flare and expect the Havocs to be with you in less than two minutes, he said, as he handed Luke Lucas a small firework-shaped object. Now, Harry Havoc raised his voice, so he had the attention of the entire class. You will all be aware that the chutes must be worn at all times. Clearly, parachutes were not around in the 17th century, so we're going to give you a batch of our newest thimbles for demanding yet discreet use. You can wear them under your cloaks and the residents of the canvas will be none the wiser. We want them back in the same condition we gave them to you, unless, of course, you have called to use them, in which case we still want the packs and shoots returned. So, Alderman, what class from the 17th century? Aristocracy, merchant, common people, beggar... Uh, somewhere between merchant and hoi bloy. Just don't make us stand out, explained the English teacher. I'm with you, Harry Havoc replied, checking off the requirements on a clipboard. The almanac says it should be a quiet day. No plague nearby, no fires. Should be a nice trip if you can just sign for this period. Twenty pounds, Alderman, from the reign of James I, of course, Tam. A tall, athletic man of about twenty strode into the room, nodding amiably at the class, and took the clipboard from his boss. Come through into the hall, everyone, Harry Havoc called out. This way, please. The whole class was led through a short corridor and into a large wood-panelled hall, which appeared to be bare of all furniture and ornamentation. Beside the doors that lined each wall were long slits in the wood through which could be glimpsed other rooms leading off the large central chamber. It was only as Nan looked up that she saw the room's main feature. Dangling twenty feet above their heads were at least a hundred large canvases, gently swaying like the restless pages of some immense book. At the far end of the room, the second Havoc brother, far taller and broader than the first, waved at the class and greeted Luke Lucas in particular. Hello there, Luke. How's tricks? G'day, Ben. No worries on all counts. Suppose you heard about some of the islanders wanting to go bush and break away, yeah? <laughs> How about we play them at rugby and settle it that way? <laughs> they win and they can break away. We win and they stay. What do you reckon, Ben? I'd need you in the second row and Harry scrum off. Ben Havoc laughed. <laughs> you should be the leader of this community, Luke. I vote for you. The Havoc brothers then took hold of two huge poles that reached to the ceiling and began bunching some canvases together to get at one in particular. 
Each canvas screeched and clanked along as it was being moved, as every canvas frame had wheels attached to it, which ran on the metal rails fixed to the ceiling. The Havocs dragged a specific canvas along to a particular spot which lined up with one of the slits in the wall, and then, releasing some chains at the top of the canvas, manoeuvred it down to ground level. The class briefly glimpsed a muddy street of Tudor houses, before the canvas was pushed through one of the slits in the wall and locked there. The school party was then led through a door into a smaller room where the canvas fitted the back wall exactly. At the other end of the room, Tam Harvey was just finishing laying out their period clothes and special parachutes. A couple of large screens had been erected for the boys and girls to change behind, which they duly began to do. The girls all had to wear long, coarse grey dresses, while the boys received brown, itchy trousers and jacket affairs, which Cayman Pike still managed to make look cool. Alderman Boxer could hardly wait to dash into the living world, but the Havocs rigorously checked that everyone was wearing shoots and that all of them had seen Dr Beamish recently to receive certain jabs. Nan and Tristan were made to swallow certain medicines and given neckerchiefs impregnated with antibacterial agents. The Havocs also straightened caps, tugged down jackets and made other slight adjustments to the costumes before finally allowing the English class to enter the canvas. Once again, as soon as they stepped beyond the threshold of the canvas, there was the feeling of being drawn into the world. And then the entire class was standing in an alleyway just off an Elizabethan thoroughfare. It was not the sights or sounds that made a first impression upon the pupils, but the overpowering stench. Some of the class began to retch, and most were blinking hard as their eyes began to water. Shelley Fordsey and a number of other girls held posies of flowers to their noses, but it hardly filtered out the smell at all. Luke Lucas summed up the general feeling. Struth! This place reeks worse than a dingo's danny! The buildings around them were largely made of brick, with a few bizarre and precarious wooden extensions that Grandpa Drew would have been proud to call his own. Here and there were occasional houses where plain timbers carved up white walls into triangular segments. The alleyway before them was uneven, strewn with rotting rubbish and patrolled at the edges by large rats. Everywhere was mud-spattered and stank. Alderman Boxer, dressed in a rich velvet bottle-green tunic and black hose, addressed them. Now, children, we are in London of the early 17th century. Please keep to the centre of the street to avoid any, um the emissions from the windows and i should not have to remind you that to eat or drink anything you might find here is strictly forbidden and those of you unlucky enough to enjoy the elizabethan toilet experience won't do so twice but there is a rose rising out of this filth believe me and we are about to meet him follow me stay close and enjoy Luke Lucas, in his black leather strides and waistcoat, wrapped his full-length cloak around him and muttered something about far from enjoying himself. The group left the alleyway and walked out into the street, which appeared to be a mixture of mud, straw and dung that might not just have come from the horses, but from their owners as well. Behind walls and wooden fences issued the sounds of cheering, mixed in with growls and the occasional yelp. Drunken men staggered out of doors and began weeping into their hands or started chatting to friendly women whose painted faces resembled those of pantomime dames. But the whole class kept squelching down the narrow street towards a large cylindrical structure of pale plaster, brick and wood. 
the thatch on the roof being far higher than any of the neighbouring buildings. Before us, children, stands the foundations of the palace we call English literature, proclaimed Mr Boxer. I give you the Globe Theatre. And I give it right back, muttered Luke Lucas. Crowds swarmed in at the single barn door of an entrance, which appeared to be funding the occupants of the entire street inside. But quite suddenly, everyone came to a halt. Nan jostled her classmates to see what the hold-up was and spotted Alderman Boxer being challenged by a couple of burly men at the door. The English teacher waved the £20 he'd stashed and the two burly men immediately dropped their surly expressions and adopted a different attitude towards him. One of them even escorted the class to their seats, knocking people out of his way as he went. The pupils were led to some hard wooden benches by the side of the stage, the occupants of which were turfed out with little patience or ceremony. The burly doorkeeper then left them, but soon returned with some thin, itchy patches of cloth he called cushions, which he lobbed in the direction of the class. The burly, surly man then went back to his post by the door. Luke Lucas immediately headed for the back of the benches, pulled his floppy hat down over his eyes and probably fell asleep, even in the cold air. The rest of the class shifted in their seats and finally settled down to watch the antics around them. Nan gazed around the Globe Theatre and saw that it was basically a drum-shaped building with three floors of steep seating all peering down upon the stage. The floor above the English class was crammed full, causing the floorboards to creak and groan in an alarming way as more and more people surged into the theatre. The stage was a broad wooden platform jutting out into the audience, but was not nearly as large a space as Nan thought it might be. Towards the back of the stage, pillars supported a balcony and beneath it was hung a royal red curtain. In front of the class was a place where the poorest citizens of 17th century London stood on the floor, crammed in like sheep at a cattle market. Indeed, the floor had a marketplace feel to it, as people seemed to be offering everything from food to clothes to gambling. Nan suddenly became aware that many of the people were staring right at the pupils in the Benjamin Wallace Thirdly School. Now that she looked at her schoolmates, she saw that the clothes the class were wearing, while authentic, were a little too bright, a little too clean, and not nearly grubby enough to fit in the scene. A drum roll sounded, and then a fanfare of a trumpet, performed by a couple of musicians somewhere above them. Two men in drab costumes appeared on a stage, and pretending that one of the balcony pillars was a shipmast, they swayed back and forth as if on a storm-tossed sea. A few moments later, half a dozen other actors, dressed in more ornate clothes, representing the garb of noblemen, hogged the front of the stage. Phew, at least it's not like that other Shakespeare we saw, said Tristan, who was sat behind Nan and her new friends. Some goober came on right at the beginning and gave the whole plot away. Shh, hissed Shelley Fordsley. The play began with a shipwreck, and everyone washed up on an island. One of the main noblemen believes his son has been drowned, but he's just been separated from the rest. An old man, Prospero, who has knowledge of magic, controls the island. It is he who has caused the shipwreck, because among the noblemen is his brother and the other plotters who unjustly set Prospero and his daughter adrift upon the sea many years ago. Prospero has a purpose for everybody on the island, and with the help of a tamed spirit, sets his plans in motion. Huh. Either the goon playing the daughter's a bloke, proclaimed Tristan, or that's the ugliest girl in London. <laughs> you won't find a single Sheila on that stage, 
muttered Lucas from beneath his hat. They didn't allow females to act then. That's POM logic for you. Nan had seen one or two plays before where the audience's only contribution were coughs, occasional whispers and respectful applause. But the same was not true within a 17th century audience. They involved, even immersed themselves in a play and made it more like a pantomime. Once they got to know the characters, some actors would be cheered onto the stage while others would enter to a chorus of boos and hisses. Sometimes the audience participation was so vocal that the actors could not be heard above the din for a line or two, but everyone appeared to enjoy the performance. The incident began when a lone voice could be heard reciting every single line of the play, even through all the noise of the crowd. The voice turned out to be that of Alderman Boxer, whose face wore an ecstatic expression of spellbound awe at being in the Globe Theatre for one of the first ever performances of The Tempest. Damn you, sir, another voice bellowed out, and a bald-headed gentleman sat only a few seats away from the class, stood up and glared at the English teacher. His oval face was crimson, and his greying beard seemed to quiver with anger. Damn you for a Blackfriars spy, you dog! The man, who was a lot smaller than his temper, continued to glare at Alderman Boxer. Instead of shutting up, the English teacher began reciting the play with greater gusto, as if trying to impress the man. The livid gentleman fought his way along the rows of seating, sweeping people out of his way with his stick, and with all his feeble strength, heaved Alderman Boxer to his feet. How came you by my words? he shouted. How came you by my play? Oh, Master William Shakespeare, a maestro, an honour, sir, a privilege. Damn your honour and damn you for a fool and a peddler of lines that are not yours. How came you by the words of this play? Only the king, his court, the players and the clerk knows its pages and none but me know it all by heart. How came you by my words? He cried as he slapped the English teacher. With one breath, the audience exhaled an ooh at the slap, for almost everyone had forsaken the play to watch the row between Alderman Boxer and Shakespeare. Oh, maestro, they that have power to hurt and will do none, began Alderman, unwisely quoting from another text of the bards, that do not do the thing they most do show. The English teacher gestured at Shakespeare. They are the lords and owners of their faces. Then Mr Boxer pointed to himself. Others but stewards of their excellence. Shakespeare flew into an outright rage at hearing his own poem quoted back to him and began beating Alderman Boxer quite savagely with a walking stick. The English teacher would not be quiet, however, but simply began reciting lines from other Shakespearean texts, which only inflamed the playwright to even greater violence. Oh, slapped by Shakespeare, beaten by the bard, cried Alderman Boxer, under the blows raining down on him. Name me another English teacher who can put a claim to such fame. The audience seemed to be enjoying the spectacle immensely, being just as keen to watch a fight as a play, and they were about to get even more entertainment for their money. There was a sudden drumming at the entrance to the theatre. The drumming turned into a heavy pounding, and a few moments later the doors lay splintered and twisted in the dust as half a dozen men on huge horses rode into the auditorium. Members of the audience scattered, bolting onto the stage or vaulting over the railings in order not to get trampled by the hooves. Even Shakespeare stopped beating Oldman Boxer and gawked at the strange knights on horseback. 
all six of the knights were clad in rusty chainmail, heavy helmets and filthy overgarments that might once have been white. Two carried spears and shields, while the other four had their shields and swords slung at their side. No one doubted that these men had been in battle many times before. Their mounts were powerful, muscular beasts, not much smaller than shire horses, and they too had seen so much warfare that the scurrying audience panicked them not at all. Nan had encountered one of the knights before, and tailing the riders was a group of four soldiers stalking in on foot, who were also familiar to Nan. The Conquistadors one of the knights rose up in his saddle and removed his helmet to reveal a bearded man of unknown age who spoke to the audience in a strange tongue. It soon became clear that it was not just the English class who could not understand him, but the 17th century audience had no idea what he was saying either. Alderman Boxer appeared to understand more than most and ventured an opinion that it might be old French. The knight was becoming irate at the audience's lack of comprehension, however, and began to bawl them all. In response, the audience, who were all under the illusion that this was part of the performance and were rather enjoying it, let out jeers and boos at the knight, inflaming the men on horseback even more. The conquistadors, on the other hand, had not wasted any time. They'd already knocked the two burly doormen unconscious, drawn their swords, and now began to scan the theatre, looking for someone or something. Nan had been told that beings created in a canvas could not learn too much more than when they were actually alive, but she had a feeling that her face was going to be remembered. Indeed, it was remembered when Wilton Harbinger, trying to cower away from the conquistadors, accidentally nudged Nan forward against the railings. Iliotta! cried Hernando Pizarro. At the sound of the cry, both knights and conquistadors turned to face Nan. She felt certain they would kill her this time. But Hernando's shout had also brought Luke Lucas out of his doze. The games teacher pounded across the seats, vaulted over the railings and plunged the spectrum flare into the floor of the pit. A rainbow of light rocketed up through the open-air roof of the theatre and exploded high above the building. For a moment it seemed as if the sun had burst into a million different ribbons of colour. The audience was delighted with the effect and began an enthusiastic round of applause, but Luke Lucas was already upon Hernando Pizarro, and a headbutt sent the Spaniards spinning to the ground. The knights were no longer an immediate threat as they were trying to calm their horses which had been alarmed at the spectrum flare, and were now all thrashing manes, rearing hooves and flying fetlocks. A brave, lonely figure in the middle of the audience pit, Luke Lucas, discarded his puny rapier and, armed only with his fists, headed for the other three conquistadors, but they looked ready and eager for a fight too. Yet, as the sports teacher tackled another of the Spanish soldiers, a third trying to back around the Australian made the mistake of coming too close to the pupils. Without hesitation, Toby and Tristan launched themselves at him, pinning the conquistador to the ground and landing kicks, punches and teeth into the hapless soldier. Use your shoots! Use your shoots! cried Alderman Boxer as he timidly unsheathed his rapier and waved it ineffectually at Francisco Pizarro. The pupils of the Benjamin Wallace Thirdly School immediately began to disappear under sprouting mushrooms of canvas. The knights had now calmed their horses and saw what was happening without understanding it. But when Cayman Pike went to help his teacher, a spear was hurled through the air and Cayman was pinned by his parachute against the stage. A knight's sword bore down on Nan too. Before she was aware of it, her parachute spewed out of its tattered case and onto the floor of the theatre, where it vanished. 
That knight was soon sent crashing to the ground when he stopped to turn, as Tristan pounced on him, sending both himself and the rider headlong into the dirt. Another knight took his place, however, with the immense strength, leaned down and heaved Nan up onto his horse, roughly slamming her down into his saddle. Nan did not wait to be rescued, but eased out of the knight's dagger from its sheath. Then she calmly soared through the strap that passed around the horse's girth. The rider, weighed down by the weight of his own armour, felt his saddle topple, but could do nothing to stop himself tumbling to the ground. Yet the tide of the fight was not going in the school's favour. One of the horses had been spurred to kick out and a hoof had connected with Luke Lucas's chest, sending him sprawling in the dirt, hardly able to breathe. Three of the other knights had formed a triangle with their horses around Tristan and Toby, effectively trapping the boys, whilst Francisco Pizarro had disarmed Oldman Boxer and was about to skewer him with his own sword. The sound of a whip rent the air and the leader of the conquistadors let out a gasp of pain as he grabbed his lacerated hand. In the doorway of the theatre were the Havocs with Tam Harvey and Cat Sanderson. The conquistadors had experienced the Havoc brothers before and backed off a little, but the four knights still on horseback rallied to charge the doorway. Ben Havoc and Tam Harvey let loose arrows from their bows. One arrow glanced off a helmet, another thudded into a shield, and both with such force it sent the two knights reeling as they backward rolled off their horses' rumps. Harry Havoc's whip had no effect on the knight's armour, but Cat Sanderson set forward with her caretaker's tetch and outshot two long prison blades from each end of the staff. As the horses passed either side of her, Cat unseated one of the knights with a swing of her staff while managing to parry the sword blow of the other knight, and then swinging round to slice through his chainmail and cut his leg. Before the remaining knight had a chance to turn his steed around to charge her a second time, Cat retracted the prison blades and hurled her tetch like a javelin. The staff hardly dipped in its flight, and the blunt end struck the knight in the throat. A moment after he'd hit the ground, the rider was unconscious. Even Nan had to admit that it was an amazing example of bravery and skill. The audience erupted into ecstatic cheers and cries of more, more, split the air. In truth, Nan would have liked to have stayed to see how the skirmish ended, but after freeing Cayman from the spear, Alderman Boxer began ushering the remaining pupils towards the theatre doors. Apologies, maestro, said the English teacher as they passed Shakespeare, who stood dumbfounded on one side of the globe. And you're going to deliver this twice a day, William? boomed a flamboyant figure from the stage. I prefer your earlier work, Will said a man standing next to the playwright. You played with wit as well to the pit, and it had more structure. Oh, structure be damned, sir, exclaimed the flashy fellow from the stage. We'll clean up, I tell you. Clean up! A hit, sir. A very palpable hit. Burbage just... Shakespeare fumbled for the right words. Just shut it! Nan, Tristan, Toby, Cayman and Alderman Boxer hurried out of the Globe Theatre. Outside, they did not find an old London street, but two canvases. One of a dusty desert landscape, and the second depicting mountains rising out of rainforest. Before they had any time to dwell on these new paintings, the English teacher was shoving his pupils back along the street that had brought them to the theatre. They turned into an alleyway and came across a dead end, but Oldman Boxer lost no time scrubbing about in the grime at the foot of the wall in front of them. Eureka! he cried as he discovered something in the ground. The twins could just make out a mark with five distinct letters, H, H and B, H. 
Alderman Boxer traced the marks with his finger. Suddenly, the changing room within the Havoc Brothers' store shimmered into existence before them, and they were bundled through. Even though all the other pupils were back inside the changing room, there was an eerie quiet to the place. Nan kept glancing at the Shakespearean canvas they'd just come through, but there was no sign that anything untoward was happening in 17th century London. Alderman Boxer instructed them to put their own clothes back on and wash their hands, and then the class waited in silence. A little while later, the Havocks, Tam Harvey, Cat Sanderson and a damaged Luke Lucas stumbled out through the picture, bearing two rolled-up canvases between them. The Havoc brothers and Tam Harvey went off to safely store the two canvases in a secure place, leaving the class staring at Cat Sanderson and the crumpled figure of Luke Lucas. Tristan eventually asked the question all the pupils had been dying to know. Who were those goobers? Cat Sanderson thought for a moment and decided to answer the question frankly. The men on foot were conquistadors, she replied. Old Spanish explorers and soldiers. We've dealt with them before. The ones on the horseback are fairly new to us, but I suspect they're crusading knights. They lived about eight or nine hundred years ago. This is only the second time we've encountered them outside their own canvas. Oh, what do they want with us? asked Toby. I mean, it's obvious they weren't going to get good seats for the play and they weren't after anyone belonging to the time, so why did they go for us? More precisely, why did they go for Nan? asked Cayman. Cat Sanderson bit her lip and glanced at Nan. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. But they're all back in their own canvases now. Alderman Boxer was silent as the class tramped through the Havoc shop and back out into Wanish Limply. Meaning to cheer the English teacher up, Tristan just made him feel more depressed when he declared, Phew, Alderman, that's probably the finest lesson I've ever had. Outside sports, bona fide. Hey, and they call computers interactive. For the rest of the day, Nan avoided the boys. It was hard to define, but she felt resentful towards them for being the only people in the class who had stayed in the theatre to help protect her. Cat Sanderson's presence and actions also troubled Nan, for it suggested that maybe she was wrong about the ex-sister, and therefore maybe the boys were right. Of course, Tristan was hardly about to leave his own sister at the mercy of the ancient soldiers, and Cat Sanderson's behaviour could be explained as necessary to keep up the appearance of being on the side of the people of Wanish Limply. But maybe it was she, Nan, whose judgement could not be trusted. Maybe she was becoming paranoid. Maybe the nightmares were beginning to take their toll. For these reasons, Nan stayed away from Tristan, Toby and Cayman and went to bed early. She was too confused to be sure that the boys were wrong about Cat, and too full of pride to apologise. 